So this morning, um, this morning we come to the last message of this series where we've been thinking about uh, hope-filled living, the privilege that we have as Christians to live uh, with a lot of hope and anticipation of the promises that God's made to us about the future. And I'm sure that you've probably had some experiences in your life where uh, you kind of dreamed and thought you knew how things were going to work out. And then you got down the road a piece and all of a sudden, you know, things didn't work out quite like you thought. Uh, maybe it was your marriage. You know, on wedding day, you stood there and you thought, wow, this is going to be really great. And you thought about all the dating experiences and that was just going to continue. And, and you had the whole future planned and everything was going to be great. And then you get down the road a few years and all of a sudden it falls apart. Maybe it's kids. Maybe you're there at the birth of your child and you bring your child and dedicate the child to the Lord, you know, at church and you have this expectation, this dream of how that child's going to be in the future and, and you get down the road a piece and the uh, kid gets off the track a little bit and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Uh, maybe it's your career. Maybe, you know, you go to college, you spend all this money and you give all this time and you're all prepared and you finally get your first job and you're in it for a few years and, you know, the company sells to some other thing and you're out in the street just like that. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you think, you know what, I'm going to save and, and when I get down the road, uh, I'm going to retire and I'm going to have this great life and I'm going to pay off the house and I'm going to do this and do that. And then all of a sudden something happens and somebody comes along, cons you maybe, and takes all your money and all of a sudden it doesn't turn out quite like you expected. What about your faith? What about we become Christians? You know, we begin to understand who we are in Christ and we get going and we get in church and we go for a while and we get down the road and all of a sudden... You know, things aren't the way that I thought they were going to be. Maybe I get offended by my church. Ah, oh, go find another church, you know, kind of thing. Uh, maybe I thought the Lord was going to deal with me in this way, and you know what, he gave me this gift, and, and I don't even like this gift. It's not me, you know. What are you trying to do to me, Lord? And uh, so on. So, you know, I'm sure that you've had something along the way and um, I want to uh, invite you to think with me together about the 73rd Psalm. Uh, I've called this message, uh, Live with the End in Mind. Live with the End in Mind. The 73rd Psalm is written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph. And uh, he was a contemporary of King David. And uh, he was from the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, which was in charge of taking care of the temple and uh, the worship and all of that in the Jewish community. And Asaph was assigned to the music ministry of the temple, right? I'm in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and uh, verse 16 says this, David commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres, and symbols to raise up sounds of joy in the worship service. Pretty cool, huh? So if you read, there's a whole bunch of names there, and uh, if you read Asaph's name comes up a couple of times, and then you get to the next chapter, 
in uh, First Chronicles, and it says, Then David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. So Asaph, you can kind of see, starts in music ministry. People recognize his gifts. They move him up. He's the chief of uh, when they're going to worship in the temple there. And then uh, a little bit further down, it says, Asaph was to sound the cymbals, the brass cymbals uh, and the bronze cymbals. So he was a percussionist. He was uh, our Ben, you know. He brought rhythm to the music, right? By the way, are you thankful for our worship team up here every Sunday? I really appreciate, you know, music is such an important part, right? It speaks to a different part of us than words, right? It gets past our head, into our hearts. Uh, I think it's so important to have a significant music ministry in our worship services. Anyway, uh, so when we get to Asaph in Psalm 73... Uh, Asaph, um, he's probably a lot older now, and um, he's probably, you know, by the time he writes the 73rd Psalm, I imagine he's probably got white hair, maybe bent over, maybe walking with a cane, and he's kind of thinking back over his life, and he's kind of reflecting on where he's at and where he's been and and so forth, and he he says in verse 1, He says, I know God is good to Israel and to those who are pure of heart. This is what I know. I know that God loves his people Israel. I know that God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. Uh, But then uh, Asaph kind of gets real. And um, I think we all know, right, that Head knowledge and heart knowledge are two different things. You can have head knowledge about God. Uh, In fact, the Bible even says that Satan has head knowledge, knows, right? But heart knowledge is something entirely different. And that's why Paul, in Ephesians, in the beginning of Ephesians, Paul prays for that church. He says, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes, enlighten the eyes of the hearts of the people. They got it here, but they don't got it here. And so there's a big difference between head knowledge, and I think Asaph here is saying, in my head, I know God's good to Israel. God's good to his people. I know that. Um, It's kind of a statement of faith, if you will, right? Kind of something you put in a doctrinal statement. I know God is good to us. But, verse 2, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I know God's good, but when I look at my life and I look back, I realize that the path, the journey of my faith has not been smooth. There was a time in my life where I almost gave it up. I almost walked away from the faith. I almost just let it go. My feet almost slipped away from God. Um, I know God's good, but as for me, when I get real, I have to acknowledge um, my feet almost slipped. And it seems, you know, at one point, Asaph uh, was about to pack it in when it came to his faith. He had had it. He was about done. 
He's about to give up on his faith, to lose his way. I know Asaph, you know, is ancient. This was probably written, you know, as of today, about 3,000 years ago. But I would say Asaph's problem is as contemporary as today. There are other people who continually say the same thing. It's as current as our life is today. Problems in life can overwhelm us. And when we jumped into the faith, we thought we were going to be protected from the kind of problems that might overwhelm us. Well, what was it that created this crisis for Asaph when he was um, going through serving in the temple and so forth? It seems that Asaph compared his life circumstances to the expectations of his faith, and they didn't add up. I didn't think this is the way it was going to be. I thought that, you know, I'm serving God, I'm working in the temple, I'm a full-time employee of the temple and so forth, and, you know, the facts of my life just don't add up with what I thought God was going to be all about. I've been leading people, in, in worship, and I've been leading them to understand that God is holy, he's unique, he's separate, he's sinless, he's holy, you know, and I've been leading people to worship God's power, he's sovereign, he's in control. And yet when I look at the way life works out on the earth, it, it just doesn't add up. And uh, I'm the worship director here, and I'm trying to put things together, and I don't get it. He says, you know, if God is holy and God is all-powerful, then it seems like the good people should prosper and the bad people should struggle. That's the way I see if God were to have his way, life should be. And uh, I'm looking around and I'm thinking about this and it doesn't seem to add up. Um, And you know, this kind of thinking has been around for a while. It's what Job's friends said to him when Job suffered. You remember when everything was taken away from Job, his friends came to him and they said, hey, Job, what did you do? God must really be ticked at you to allow this to happen in your life. What did you do? And Mrs. Job, you remember her? She's like, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just give it up? That's where Asaph was at, right? Almost slipped, almost gave up the faith. Um, And again, this has been around for a long time. You might remember in the New Testament, you remember uh, there was a guy who was born blind. Boy, what a tragedy that would be. And uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, hey, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither. God's got a plan. He's working his plan. It's part of the plan. That kind of thinking, you know, like uh, good people should really do well. uh, Because why? Because God's good to Israel. God's good to his people, the people who are pure in heart. And uh, what was it that triggered Asaph? Why why is he uh, so agitated? Well, apparently Asaph knew some people who were ungodly, non-Christian People In his case, probably uh, Israelites, but who were uh, ungodly people, never came to the temple, and uh, hardly ever came to worship, maybe Christmas and Easter, 
you know that's not in the temple, right? Christmas and Easter. But in today's language, <laughs> just checking to make sure you caught that. You're like me. I read the bulletin to see, it. do I have the right sermon for the right week, you know, kind of thing. <clears throat> but he knew some people, and um, they were ungodly people, and they seemed to be doing really well those ungodly people. They lived in these beautiful manicured houses with no weeds in their grass, you know, and mulch all over their bushes and uh, no problems, it seemed to him. They, They had the best horsepower available in their barns, you know, Uh, Their kids went to Ivy League schools. They had servants to take care of everything. And so Asaph says in the next verse, in in the third verse, he admits it. He says, I was envious of the arrogant. My bad. You know what happened to me back then when I was kind of growing up in the faith? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I realized what was going on. I realized my theology didn't add up right. I needed to change the way I thought if I was going to conform my life to God. And I looked around and I just, I was envious of the people who had more than I had. And uh, not only that, but uh, he goes on here in the fourth verse and he says, you know, they have no pangs. They're never sick. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I don't know how he knows that. You know, maybe he's, I get the picture that Asaph is maybe on his way to the doctors and he passes the gym and he sees all their chariots there at the gym and he's on his way to the doctor to be put back together. I don't really know, right? Uh, But he says um, another thing, verse 5, the next verse, he says, you know what? They're not in trouble like everybody else. They don't get in trouble like everybody else. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. I thought, yeah, they don't get speeding tickets. Uh, Yeah, their pipes don't freeze in the winter. Yeah, their bills don't pile up on the desk, you know. And then on top of all of that, uh, Asaph just can't stand these people's attitude. So he says in verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace, right? Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They wear their pride like some grandmother might wear a necklace that's given to her by her grandchildren, right? Pride is their necklace, verse 6. Violence covers them as a garment. And um, in that pride, you know, pride is basically, you know, I do what's best for me, period. I do what's best for me. I don't think about you, and I don't think about the church, and I don't think about uh, my neighbor, and I don't think about, I do what's best for me. And that's how I act, and that's what's at the core of my being, and so forth. And so oftentimes that ends up in violence. Uh, Verse 7 and 8, their eyes swell out through fatness, Asaph says. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice, loftily. They threaten oppression. Seems like Asaph maybe had some conversation with his neighbors, And he got together with them and talked to them, and and lo and behold, you know what they said? They said, listen, if you don't embrace my ideology, I'm going to oppress you. I'm going to shut you up. I'm going to put you down. I'm going to take you out, you know. 
And Asaph says, you know, something very contemporary there, right? They scoff, they speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They're going to put me out of business. And so Asaph's thinking to himself, you know, this isn't the way I thought it was going to be when I signed up with God. I thought God is good to Israel, and I'm an Israelite. And so um, he has this problem with these people, and they're getting under his skin. And uh, maybe he, you know, realizes that they're now threatening him, and he feels sort of bullied by his ungodly neighbors, and threatened, intimidated, if you will. And maybe Asaph tried to speak up for God. I think he really wanted to. Maybe he mustered up the courage at some point and said, hey, to his neighbors, you know, uh, the way you're living is not God's plan for our life. And you know, God loves you. He has a better plan for your life. And you know, uh, this God who really loves you, he hates your sin, but he loves you. And uh, maybe Asaph tried to help people, you know, kind of work through, but they just laughed. Uh, says here in verse 9, you know, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. They don't care. They're just laughing at old Asaph. And Asaph, you know, really wants to stand up for God, I think. But when he compares his life to his neighbor's life, he's like, I don't have a leg to stand on. How am I going to tell the people in my community that they need God when they have everything and they look at me and they laugh at me and they think I'm crazy, you know? And I think, you know, maybe Asaph could have done better if everybody else in the temple had agreed, we'll all take a stand together. We'll all take a stand and we'll all you know, be united and we'll have the same theology and we'll put that all together. And uh, But he says in verse 10, this is a really interesting verse, he says, therefore his, Asaph's people, turn back to them. Wait a minute. Asaph's people turn back to his neighbors. What's with that? And they find no fault in them. Here I'm going, I'm trying to explain, you need God, you need salvation, you need forgiveness, you need to, you know, deal with your issues and so on and learn to love your wife and all the rest of it. And he looks for some support that everybody's going to agree with the same thing and he finds out that his people have turned back to them and they find no fault. And Asaph's like, uh, what's going on here? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I bet some of the people in the temple work for his neighbor. They don't want to lose their job. Maybe Asaph's neighbor's a banker and he's holding the mortgage on a bunch of the people's houses. They don't want to lose their house, so they're not going to rattle his cage. And so all of a sudden, the people in the temple together, right, don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to rock the boat. And... uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe even some of the people married into the family of his neighbors. And they're like, wow, you know, if I bring this up, my faith, what I believe, uh, it's going to create a lot of problems and so forth. And so all of this goes to embolden these people, these ungodly people. In verse 11, here's what they say. They say, how can God know what's going on? Wow, Asaph's now got a real problem because now they're, you know, putting down his God 
they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't know what's going on. You think God cares about every person's life? You think God has the capacity to really love each person as an individual? Do you think he really knows how many hairs are on our head? Do you think he really knows our name? Do you think he's that capable and that big and so that Psalm 139 is really true? And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, and then this is kind of a summary statement by Asaph about those people. He says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And then old Asaph goes on a little rant. He goes on a little vent, right? I know you've never done this, but Asaph did this. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's been in vain for me to dedicate my life to God, Asaph. This is, remember, he's old, he's looking back, and he's a period of time in his life where he thought like this. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This has been going on for a long time. Asaph's had this stuff rattling around in his brain, unable to resolve it, and it's been happening for a long time. And it's really kind of interesting. Uh, I think Asaph is questioning himself, and uh, he's asking, you know, where has living for God really gotten me? Who appreciates me? All I get is grief and complaints and problems. My soul is so unsettled, and I've been feeling this way for quite a while. Every day when I wake up in the morning, I got the same, you know, gnawing cloud over my head. And Asaph, what he's really saying is, you know what, it really doesn't pay to serve God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your life. It really doesn't pay. That's what Asaph was thinking at a certain time. And I I think if we went back to his neighbors and sort of pressed on his neighbors a little bit and said, you know, why are you like this? Why do you blow God off? Why do you think God is ignorant? And so on and so forth. I think his neighbors might say something like a lot of people say today. A lot of people today will tell you if you push back on them, well, you know, I got to live. I got to make a living. I got to live. And the truth is, No, you don't have to live. You have to die, but you don't have to live. There's a lot of people who don't live. In fact, 100%. But you do have to die. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a whole different perspective that comes over our life when it comes to God. And, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, in, in Psalm 73, Asaph, when he comes to his senses, he asks the question in verse 25, who do I have in heaven but God? Who do I have in heaven but God? Who am I going to attach my life to? Who am I going to turn to? Who do I have in heaven but God? And uh, I think, you know, this would be uh, kind of a, a revelation for him. And, you know, at least Asaph realized, you know what? The real problem with me is me. (laughs) It's not everybody else. The real problem's inside me. I can't reconcile the stuff of my life with my faith. And either my faith has to go deeper to 
touch my life at that deepest level or I start blaming everybody else for what I think is causing me grief on the surface. And I start blaming these ungodly rich people. And uh, at least Asaph has the sense enough to keep his mouth shut. This pretty cool verse here, the next verse, uh, verse 15. He said, if, if I had said this, if I shared what I'm really thinking, if I was totally honest and transparent, uh, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have, you know, messed up a bunch of kids if I talked about how I personally was wrestling Not everything that we think is good for public consumption. True? Not everything that we think is for public consumption. And then he goes on here, and uh, next verse he says, you know, but when I thought how to understand this, how do I put this together? What do I do with these uh, thoughts and feelings? It seemed to me a wearisome task. It was killing me. It was wearing me out. I couldn't put it together. I didn't have an answer. And uh, I just, you know, I don't know, maybe he was getting discouraged. Maybe we would, in our day, say, wow, this guy was getting depressed. Every day he's living with this struggle and it's taking its toll on him and it's draining him and so forth. Uh, and, 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 and then he says my favorite verse in this psalm, until I went to the sanctuary of God, until I went to church, Got to love it, right? Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. All of a sudden, I went to church, and I got the bigger picture. And I realized that this life, 100 years or so, is very, very small compared to the eternity that God has promised me. That he made me in his own likeness, in his own image, and he's... Eternal, he goes on forever, and that's what he's promised me. And all of a sudden, I realized that my thinking was truncated to just this life, and I underestimated my God and overestimated my neighbors. And all of a sudden, the light went on in my heart. When I thought how to understand this, it just seemed to me such a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God And then I got the long view. And then all of a sudden I realized there's a different end for my neighbors than there is for me. And I'm not sure, you know, what Asaph heard in church, but he certainly got the bigger picture. And uh, he was able uh, to put his present issue into a bigger perspective And um, when I factored in their end, when I thought about their destiny, when I took the long-range view of life and the consequences of living life without God, all of a sudden I got the answer to my dilemma. All of a sudden I increased the value I should put on God and decreased the value I should put on comparing myself with everybody else. I went to church. What happens when we go to church? Well, I want to say three things should happen when we come to church. Number one, we should worship. The minute you get into the presence of God, everything is reevaluated, right? All of a sudden, my priorities are very different than what they are 
when I'm not in the presence of God. Now, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> I think since COVID, I have some friends and uh, they tell me, hey, Dave, I can worship at home. Hey, I worship in the woods. I worship walking on the beach. And I'm like, you know, that's great. Because you know why? I think worship is a lifestyle. I don't think worship is an hour on a Sunday, right? Worship is a lifestyle. God always goes first. God initiates. God creates. And then we get to respond to what God is telling us. He speaks first. He loves first. He forgives first. He always goes first. And we get to respond, right? And so I say to these people, you know, it's great. It's great. I I like to worship walking on the beach myself, you know. However, uh, what about accountability? What about tithing? What about, you know, there's 50, I, I think a little more than 50, but there's 50 at least one another's in the New Testament. Love one another, teach one another, serve one another. What about the 50 one another's? How do you do that on the beach? Is that church? See, in church, first we worship, right? We get into the presence of God. And by the way, if we want to find God today, where is he? He lives in us. Right? I've been in this building at night when it's empty. He's not here. It's just a building. Where do we find God's presence? In us, in the people. The spirit of God lives in us. If we want to find him, that's where he's at. And so when we come together, uh, first of all, we worship, and it, it causes us to reorient everything, our priorities, reorient ourselves, our identity, who am I in Christ, and worship, right? And then the next thing it seems to me that we do in church is we learn, Asaph went into the sanctuary and, you know, he found some maybe like-minded people, a few of them that he could really trust, and he opens up to them about his struggle. He's like, hey, I'm the worship leader here, but let me tell you where I'm at. I'm really not in a good place. And he finds some people that he can open his soul to in church. I went into the sanctuary, I found some people, you know, and I like to say to my friends who like to worship on the beach, you know, What about learning? We come to church and we learn. We learn from each other. And what about the fellowship and the uh, caring and the uh, giftedness? You know, God's given you a gift so that you can serve me. (laughs) You know, you go to the beach, I lose. Right? Remember what God said? The church is like a body. And the body, right, has all these different parts. And if you say to yourself, well, you know, I'm just a foot. I'm going to go to the beach. Well, you're going to look kind of funny on the beach. The church is a body. And you know what? Your body has systems. You have a nervous system. You have a vascular system. uh, You have a metabolic system. You know, uh, the, the, the church has systems that enable it to act like a body. And, and if you choose to check out, you short-circuit a system or two because God has gifted you to be a part of what makes the church work. Asaph went to church and he, he, he found some people and he got ministered to and he so on and so forth. And so then he 
says here as he goes on, how am I doing? Oh, I'm done. (laughs) Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when somebody awakes. Oh, Lord, you rouse yourself and despise them as phantoms. There is coming a day when the ungodly, you know, will be taken out by the Lord. We call it the day of the Lord, right? It's all through the scriptures. And, uh, you know, Asaph is like, you know, those people are like a dream. You ever have a dream? You wake up in the morning, your wife asks you, what'd you dream about? You were moaning last night or whatever, you know? And you're like, I can't remember. And remember the Bible says, for now, right, the weeds and the wheat grow together. But there is coming a day, right? A day of judgment. And all of a sudden, Asaph is able to take in the bigger picture. Um, He was able to live with the end in mind. And then he sees what's going to happen. So Asaph admits, you know what? I misunderstood. I undervalued my relationship with God and overvalued my relationship with my neighbor. And I got to get that straightened out and turned around. And so he says in these verses here, uh, you know what? He, He admits this about himself. He says, you know what? Um, <clears throat> when, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I hear him saying, you know, I was a knucklehead. That's what he's saying there, right? And then I love this verse. Listen to this. Nevertheless, me being a knucklehead, nevertheless, I'm continually with you because you hold my right hand. I almost let go of your hand. But you, my father, never let go of my hand. Isn't that just the greatest? That's the picture. When we're in the hard times, remember, you might try to let go of God, but God's got a hold of you. And he's going to walk through, and, and look what he says. I'm continually with you. You hold on to my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you're going to receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. He finally gets to that place where he's going to live a God-first life. There's nothing better. There's nothing that's... uh, I realize the riches of my neighbors are all going to go and be burned up someday and amount to nothing. And besides, they're not content. They always have to have more. So I find that God enables me to be content and he's entrusted me with eternal things. And then he says this, he says what I said, you know, my flesh and my heart may fail, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. I don't have to live, but I have to die. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. You know what? Dying's not going to make any difference in my life. In fact, it's going to get better. The Apostle Paul says, you know, I'm hard-pressed whether to stay on or go and be with the Lord, which is far better, he says, you know. And I could show you other passages, but... For behold, um, those who are far from you are going to perish. You put an end to everybody who's unfaithful to you. And then here's his conclusion, verse 28. But for me, it is all about being near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That's where I'm going to live. That's where I'm going to take my stand. That's who I'm going to listen to. For me... It is good to be near God, and number two, that I may tell everybody else about your works. There's two things I'm going to do at this stage of my life when I look back and I remember those days when I struggled 
and I'm going to just give my whole heart to God. I'm going to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I'm going to do my best to tell other people about what he's done. And certainly Easter is a great time for us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just pause here this afternoon to thank you for your goodness. You're such a great God. And Lord, I thank you for putting this psalm in the scriptures for us to understand and to learn from. And I thank you, Father, that we can be real and we can be honest and that you are honest like this in the scriptures. And that our journey in our relationship with you isn't always smooth. And there are those times when we are challenged, challenged beyond our own abilities. And I thank you to know, Father, that you hold on to our hand and you will counsel us through it if we give you the chance, if we don't turn away. And Father, you will bring us into glory someday for which we will be eternally thankful through Jesus Christ who made it all possible and in whose name we pray. Amen.